and welcome to On the Nature of Things, a history podcast about people, literature and nature, hosted by me, Mary Hitchman, and me, Chloe Fairbanks. We investigate how the people of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland understood and engaged with the natural world from 700 to 1700. That's a thousand years of history to cover, so we should probably get started. Today we're discussing trees, their significance in the landscape, and their place in the medieval and early modern imagination. We've got an extract from Amelia Lanier's poem The Description of Cookham, written around 1610. Lanier is describing a utopian landscape for educated women, and trees are an important part of this. Now let me come unto that stately tree, wherein such goodly prospects you did see, that oak that did in height his fellows pass, as much as lofty trees, low-growing grass, much like a comely cedar, straight and tall, whose beauteous stature far exceeded all. How often did you visit this fair tree, which seeming joyful in receiving thee, would, like a palm-tree, spread his arms abroad, desirous that you there should make abode, whose fair green leaves, much like a comely veil, defended Phoebus when he would assail, whose pleasing boughs did yield a cool, fresh air, joying his happiness when you were there, where, being seated, you might plainly see hills, vales, and woods, as if on bended knee they had appeared, your honour to salute, or to prefer some strange, unlooked-for suit, all interlaced with brooks and crystal springs, a prospect fit to please the eyes of kings. Significant trees crop up in the Bible and other Christian writings, like the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, from which Eve took the forbidden fruit. And, of course, Christ was crucified on a wooden cross. We know very little about what pre-Christian religious practices in England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland may have looked like, but medieval Christians certainly thought that some trees had associations with pagan worship. And in the 8th century, St Boniface travelled from England to bring Christianity to the obviously unwilling people of what is now Germany. Part of Boniface's missionary strategy was to cut down a sacred oak tree. And you can imagine that the locals felt really warmly to him after that. <laughs> That's so interesting. Oaks were popular locations for Christian preaching, and Boniface's vengeful tree fettling makes me wonder whether that was a leftover pre-Christian custom. I actually have a lot to say about oak trees. <laughs> they had traditional associations with strength and masculinity, and the Latin word for acorn, glans, can also refer to the penis. I don't think this is particularly penis-related necessarily, but the Globe Theatre is constructed from oak, and its current logo is a ring from an oak tree. There's practical reasons that different types of wood are used for different objects, as well as symbolic ones. Alder holds up really well under high temperatures, and it was used to make bowls and cups, whereas ash was a really popular choice for tool handles because of its durability. A really common misconception of medieval England is that it was covered in woodland, and we perhaps have various Robin Hood films to thank for that. But Keith Thomas writes that in actual fact, probably no more than 20% of England was wooded by the late 11th century. Woodlands were carefully managed from this period because they were such an important resource. And by the 13th century, England's wood and timber trade was well established. 
Trees are often referenced in the names of towns and villages such as Alderton and Ashton. It doesn't have to be a specific type of tree though, so the village of Timsbury in Somerset has been a settlement site since the Bronze Age and its name roughly means wooded hillside. And as with rivers and bodies of water, trees were useful boundary markers between territories. When you think about it in this context, it's not surprising that punishments for illegal tree felling in England existed as early as the 7th century. Towards the end of the medieval period, we see increased legal action relating to trees, and from 1483 to 1585, there are multiple statutes for the protective enclosure of young trees. Today we're joined by Professor Emily Steiner from Penn. Emily works on medieval English literature, natural history, and the history of the encyclopedia. I wanted to ask you, Emily, what did medieval encyclopedias look like? Who consulted them, and what were they used for? Well, the 13th century especially was a period of an explosion of natural encyclopedias. And we think that they were almost immediately redesigned to suit lay readers, very aristocratic lay readers. They were first kind of um, maybe sort of study guides for students at like the University of Paris, but they were translated from the university language Latin into vernaculars and especially French and extremely beautifully and expensively decorated. They were like the ultimate coffee table book by the 14th and 15th century. That's wonderful. I love that. That's certainly how I experienced my first encyclopedia as a child. I remember having this huge hardback thing and thinking I was the cleverest person in the world because it had lots of words and lots of pages. I think I was about six. So moving on to the subject of the episode, which is trees, how and where do trees feature in medieval encyclopedias? Well, even from the very beginning, from the from the earliest later medieval period, trees usually have their own very, very large section in medieval encyclopedias. And this is true for an encyclopedia that was very popular called On the Properties of Things, another one that's called On the Nature of Things. They usually have a large section. And sometimes when they're illustrated, sometimes there's even like a little caption illustration for each tree, which is like an, a, a sort of expensive proposition for a handmade book. So they definitely play a really important role early on. Sometimes those sections are like trees and plants, but trees are definitely the dominant vegetable form. I love that you said the name of the podcast in the podcast. <laughs> it's like when they say the name of the TV show in the TV show. Thank you so much. I just wanted to know about, you know, some of the the more strange, more exotic, or as you said previously, more prophetic trees that crop up. So the thing about medieval encyclopedias is that they include sort of everyday trees. And people really do seem, uh, people who are literate in the Middle Ages, um, who we have evidence for, seem to really know the names of a lot of different trees in a ways that would be enviable today. So they're very interested in everyday trees that have really good cures, but they're also interested in trees that we would say are legendary trees, but that are included sometimes within um, what we'd say are like regular or typical trees. So one of those, for example, are vegetable lamb. This is sort of like the beyond beef version of medieval arboreal legend. There's actually a couple of things like this, but the vegetable lamb grows from a tree it, that produces a kind of gourd. And when you open it up, there is a kind of lamb in there that has blood and skin, but no wool, crucially, and is completely 
completely edible and nutritious. And you can see that this is also kind of like an exotic riff on like the Eucharist, but like, it's like an actual lamb body. So that's the vegetable lamb. And it's actually in Jewish traditions too. And I think it's probably ultimately like a Greek, a, a Greek legend idea, but Jewish people were interested in it too, because what if it was kosher to eat in dairy meals? Like what if that's actually dairy, right? Because it's growing from a tree, even though it seems like meat. Just another one that's similar to that is the barnacle goose tree. So people didn't know how barnacle geese generate it. And so the theory was that they were spontaneously generated from rotten wood tree. And so then there was a similar conversation, like, can you eat them on Lent? And so the 1215 letter in council was like, no, you can't eat them on Lent, even though, yes, they are spontaneously generated from trees. Those are some exotic trees that I think of like the Beyond Beef example is the one that's sort of crossing over into like different sort of vegetarian meat regimes. That is fascinating, especially as a, a flexitarian. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the exotic trees, but there's also prophetic trees, but they're also like hybrid species. I don't know if you want to hear about any of those. We definitely do. Okay. Um, yes to hybrid species and yes to prophetic trees. Well, it seems like you can only be like a prophetic tree if you're also like a kind of hybrid species tree. So probably the most famous are the ones from the Alexander the Great tradition. And you actually find these across Christian, Muslim, and Jewish cultures. And that's the trees of the sun and the moon. And you find them in even like a, a narrative like Mandeville's travels. You know, everyone knew about the sun and the moon. And they're Indian trees. Um, the sun is male and the moon is a female tree. The sun speaks an Indian language. The moon speaks Greek. And they prophesize for Alexander his death. So they're a kind of early oracle tree that were very influential to medieval readers. But there's like two other medieval ones that I think are really odd and interesting. And one is the dry tree, which you find in things like Marco Polo and Mandeville's travels. And this is also in like a vague Middle Eastern location where there's no other tree around. So one of the things that makes this weird is that it's a solitary tree and it has green leaves on one side or white on the other, or it has no leaves. And the tradition is it's going to go green again when a Western Lord comes and says mass, and then all the Saracens and Jews will be converted, and then the Messiah will come again. So that's like the dry tree. People were obsessed with the dry tree. And then another one is the Holy Cross tree. That has some really interesting apocryphal biblical stories about it. And the idea is that either the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden became most Moses's rod, a beam in Solomon's temple made into a cross, and then Christ is sacrificed on it. Or three, and I like this story better. When Adam died, his son Seth took three seeds from three different trees. And those are like sometimes cedar, pine, cypress, or olive, and put it in his mouth. And out of Adam's mouth, through this tree, from which they were going to get the wood for Moses's rod and Solomon's temple, and eventually the cross. So that's like a really interesting human genealogy. That's, I think, a really fascinating. And I think of that as kind of an exotic tree, but it's also kind of a typological or prophetic. That's, yeah, really, really interesting to see the kind of relationship between people and trees and kind of bring trees forth and being very linked to their story, especially if we're looking
looking to the Bible, I'd never heard of those links being made before. So that's really interesting. Thank you so much. Emily, you've spoken about trees in their practical everyday capacities, and then also in their more exotic, mystical, maybe even prophetic capacities. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little more on the extent to which those ways you could be thinking about trees was prevalent in medieval thought? Well, I think one of the things that's really important about the way that medieval readers understood the natural world, including trees, is that every single thing has the potential to have like a beneficial or curative element to it. And that includes every single kind of tree. And everyone also has, whether you're talking about trees or rocks or animals, every single one has like a medicinal and a symbolic property. Everything lends itself to like an allegorical significance and everything has a practical thing. So there's nothing that's just there. There's no tree that's just growing. Every single one is full of meaning. And sometimes that meaning is just sort of kind of made up because people don't know a lot about a particular tree. It doesn't grow in their region, but every single one has meaning. And, you know, I, I don't know whether figs could grow in England at that time. It really depends what the temperature was and how many days a year you have warm days, non-frost days in England. So I'm not really sure if you can grow figs in England today or whether you could grow figs in the Middle Ages, but they were obsessed with fig trees and they were obsessed with the bark of fig trees, um, the sweetness of the figs, the medicinal properties. My knowledge coming into studying medieval encyclopedias of science is pretty poor. So I find myself like going through the section on trees and seeing if there's any remedies for me, possibly? Like one, one of the things about figs and fig trees, but particularly like the bark of the fig tree is that it can be used as a cream to like prevent wrinkles. And I'm like, I'll try it. You know what I mean? And there's other ones that are like really good for your stomach. There's one like the platinus tree. They promise us that the bark can take away toothaches. And, you know, like sometimes you're just busy and you can't make an appointment. And you're like, maybe I could just try this. I was going to say, I've certainly seen weirder cures espoused on the internet. Compared to some of the suggestions out there, I'm very willing to put fig bark on my face to prevent wrinkling. And there's also ones that are notoriously poisonous, like the yew tree. And so this is really important to people, for example, who are writing about Ireland in the face of colonialism to say Ireland has a lot of yew trees. So you better be careful, people who are trying to fight the Irish because you're going to be you're going to have to deal with the yew trees also because every also every tree also has some negative or poisonous thing for something. It might be for bees or might be for human beings. So that's like an important element of every plant, but particularly of every trees because and particularly of fruit bearing trees. That was fantastic. Thank you. I'm going to switch tactics completely, primarily because I know that you're very interested in him right now, and I am a suspicious early modernist, so know absolutely nothing about him. But I was wondering if you could explain, for my benefit, but also for the benefit of the listeners, who Gerald of Wales was. Okay, so Gerald of Wales, for the Middle Ages and for the Renaissance, was a really important canonical 12th, early 13th century author. And he was from what he describes as a mixed family of North Norman, French, and Welsh descent and from a very noble family. And he wrote about many things, including the colonization of Wales and Ireland. And he's a little bit complicit in those colonizations because he's allying himself with French overlords, with Henry II, who is the, the king, beginning of the time that he's writing. He's actually really important to Renaissance historians too, and especially like Leland and 
like that. And one of his things about Wales is on the one hand, he kind of wants the Anglo-French aristocracy and monarchy to subdue Wales because he, his fortunes are sort of tied up with them. On the other hand, he wants Wales to resist. And one of the things that he thinks is really resistant is the topography. And trees are a big part of how he thinks about this, as I explained with the example of the U in Ireland. So for example, when he's talking about about the conquest of Ireland, he talks about a special willow tree that bears white apples that cure the sick, thanks to St. Kevin. It's the kind of thing that you can't find in England. Or he talks about how in his conquest of Ireland, Henry II's archers used a sacred grove of trees to build a fire. And he's very specific about what kind of trees they were, that they were ash and yew trees, and they were planted by holy men. And of course, the archers die horribly from a sudden pestilence for like messing with Ireland's special holy trees, right? So like, there's a lot of resistant rivers and there's all kinds of resistant and, and there's like resistant dogs, but the trees play a big part in that resistance. And he sees Ireland and Wales as being full of trees and especially Wales as being extremely wooded. And that is actually very hard for English people to maneuver around those woods because they're so thick and shadowy. But there's one really interesting one that I just wanted to share with you that I think would work well for this podcast and that listeners of this podcast would be interested in. So he's on the trip to Wales and he's almost at St. David's, which is at the tip of Wales. And St. David's is also sort of in his day, the kind of the center of like ecclesiastical resistance to a colonizing English church. And so he tells us that when Henry II, King of the English was wintering in Ireland, there was a curious phenomenon on the shore. And it is a very windy shore right there still today, that the shores of South Wales were completely denuded of sand because of this really strong wind. And all of a sudden, the subsoil, which had been buried deep for centuries, was suddenly exposed. And suddenly, they saw giant tree trunks at the sea bottom standing in the area with their tops lopped off. And they still, still bearing the cuts of axes as if they had been cut by loggers just yesterday. The soil was pitch black. And he says the wood of the tree trunks shone like ebony. And he calls this a strange convulsion of nature. And he says, clearly what we were seeing here is an ancient forest grove, maybe from the time of the flood, maybe a little bit later. And the tempest raged so much that all the conjured eels and sea fish were also driven up into the high rocks and bushes. It's really important to him that this happened when Henry VI, this colonizing king, came to St. David's, which is like at the heart of the ecclesiastical resistance. And he goes on to say that, that it was impassable now by ship to go in that area because you have these huge trees from thousands and maybe millions of years ago standing up there as if they had just been cut. And so like, you kind of can't mess too hard with whales because who knows what's under that water? Maybe it's a whole nother forest, like a whole nother grove that's standing there like soldiers, like keeping you from going further. And I feel like that's like the ultimate example of, you know, the resistance of the landscape, particularly of these trees. Tolkien read that. <laughs> Tolkien definitely read that. There's no way that Tolkien had a read all the way else. <laughs> and the other part of my brain is like, wow, Shakespeare, why did you just have them pluck trees in Macbeth when you could have like an actual forest just suddenly pop up in the middle and be like, you thought. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have some, some words with my man, Bill. <laughs> I think trees kind of get to the heart of the way that medieval 
people like Gerald of Wales appreciated regular miracles of science as miracles. He gives the example how in France, there's a forest that he mentions that's very thickly wooded. And he says, it's amazing that whenever it takes fire and burns to the roots, it spontaneously shoots up again without any human labor. And he says, who shall presume to investigate or assign the causes of such occurrence when it's plain that the use of the elements is common to all classes of animated nature? And I think what he's amazed about here and why he wants to remark about it. And so so people who gloss this passage, modern scholars are like, of course that happens. We see it all the time when forests are burned down and then they spontaneously creep. And sometimes you need a catastrophe in the broad scheme of things for there to be biodiversity you know, and for new things to come up. But what he's actually saying is that there are things that are sort of universally observable as natural principles that we can still appreciate as something miraculous, like something amazing, right? And I think for him and trees and other medieval writers, talking about a willow tree that bears white apples and talking about a burnt forest that regenerates itself are kind of like one of a piece, even though we would say that one is miraculous and fantastical, the willow that bears white apples, and one is normal and healthful, you know, the burnt forest that regenerates. Like for him, they're all miraculous. They're all about the amazing things that created nature that trees can do. And I, I think that's like an important feature of his writing, but I think of a lot of medieval writers. Since you've mentioned writers and writing, I'd like to branch out into literature and ask you how trees are used allegorically in medieval literature. Okay, so for medieval moralists, trees are low-hanging fruit very easy to use. No, I think for, you know, trees are very complicated organisms, first of all. There's many different parts to them, and they also are host to a lot of different organisms. But in addition, they physically look like human beings. I mean, you could say that that's just something we've dreamt of, but medieval people felt that trees in particular look like human beings, and they are also very complicated looking, which is something that's actually a little bit different. So between those two things, they lend themselves for understanding complicated relationships between people that pertain to the individual person who's actually kind of simple in concept. Human relationships, morality, agency, change. Trees can deal with like all that complexity as like allegorical figures. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why trees are so suited for talking about genealogy and in genealogical histories, right? And there is some thought that the idea of a family tree originates in the medieval concept borrowed from the Bible of the tree of Jesse. You see these from a very early period in, in, in illustrated manuscripts where you have Jesse, Christ's forebear, with like a tree like stuck in his body and out of it, I mean, and they're kind of gross looking and out of them come all the different family members who descend from Jesse and culminate in Jesus, right? And people think that that might be the original family tree. It seems hard to believe that someone else somewhere in the world didn't come up with this idea of the family tree, but um, at least in the Western tradition. And we use it all the 
the time, right? Like that, like when you, if you do an ancestry.com, if you open up your ancestry.com account, you can search for your tree and other people's trees, right? And, and it's not like they put le- leaves on it or anything. Like we've come to see that kind of graph as a tree, even when it's not decorated with leaves. And for medievals, there was a lot of, lot of other kinds of trees that we no longer use that much, like the tree of consanguinity, which looks like a genealogical tree. And there's tons of manuscript images of these, but they show blood relationships. Like how are you related to other people by blood? And its companion piece was the tree of affinity, which shows marriage relationships. And they usually look like trees and they have a genealogical look to us, but they're very flowered and decorated and have trunks and stuff. And those are there to make sure you don't marry the wrong person, which seems to have been a real problem. There's also uh, trees of virtues and vices. We see there's many, many of these where like humility is the root of virtue and pride is the root of vice and all these other different like virtues and vices come out and they were really popular for a long time. I'm getting excellent discovery of witches vibes here. But yeah, if you could chat a little bit more about what kind of writings use which types of allegorical trees and which allegorical trees carried the most weight in this period, like which are the ones that are going to be referenced the most? Well, you know, sermon writing and religious treaties and mystical treaties are popular genres of medieval literature that use different kinds of trees of virtues and vices like all the time. It's legal material that's going to use the trees of consanguinity and affinity. The genealogical trees are obviously being used by chronicles. And actually in this period, in the 13th and 14th century is kind of the birth of the genealogical chronicle. And there's many of these, you know, that shows sort of the branching of ancestral families and kings and queens as as genealogical trees. So these are like a big part of history writing in the period. And then there is some crossover in to sort of secular literature, I guess. And one, one example, um, it's not secular literature, but we teach the secular literature is Piers Plowman, which is a very important allegorical poem from the 14th century. One of the, there's a lot of allegorical trees in that poem, but the big one is called the tree of charity. And the dreamer encounters this, this tree of charity. And he's told that the leaves are good words and blossoms are obedient speech and the trunk is pity and the word and the flesh are the bad winds and the devil is the thief stealing the fruit. And the person guarding the tree, Pierce Plowman, pulls down an apple for the dreamer to eat and all the fruit tumble into the basket of the devil. And it turns out the fruit are the patriarchs and prophets and the devil runs away like, ha ha ha, I've got the fruit and you've got to get it. So that's like a crossover tree that's crossing over into what we think of as being like English literary tradition from Christian schemes, but informed by very specific deep knowledge of fruit trees that's really important for medieval writers. I I think I'd just add to that that there's another genre of health literature that's, you know, we don't think of as literature, but it's sort of self-help literature. And one example of that is the Tecunum Sanitas, which is a a care regimen that was very popular in the Middle Ages, coming from 11th century Arabic tradition through Sicily to 14th century Liberty to England, in which there's a whole section that's just about trees and the care of trees. But one of the things that's really important in that book is that it's portraying human beings looking really healthy next to trees that look really healthy. And one of the really healthy healthy things that you can be doing is being outside taking care of trees. So there's, that's like another literature that's impacting even these examples of like the the tree of charity. 
is like a kind of notion that trees are not just allegorizable. They're also like a physical example of what healthiness can look like. And your, your interactions with them also attest to your healthiness, like both moral and spiritual, but also like physical. That's so interesting. I love the idea of someone walking alongside the river and seeing a beautiful willow tree and being like, yes, that, that is what I aspire to look like. I keep wanting to know so many things from the podcast interviewees. Talking about it in the allegorical literature was making me think of when we were doing preliminary research for this episode, I was seeing a lot about, it was specifically coming up in the higher, later medieval period, but about sort of place names being related to the type of wood or tree you could find there. And so it was making me wonder about trees in just sort of the language of the period, like the, I don't know if cultural lexicon is quite the right word, but like how we'd reference, you know, oh, your family tree today, the idea of trees or the language around trees, like roots and seeds, etc. how prevalent that was in sort of everyday discourse. I don't know if I can give you a very coherent answer to that question, which is a very good question. Sorry, it wasn't a very coherently asked question. I would just say that one of the reasons place names contain tree names is because there are a lot of trees in that place. And sometimes it was because there was one tree in that place. And again, the, the, the sort of one tree phenomena, I think is pretty important. And what I don't know is, is the history of whether these were pagan trees or pagan sites of worship or how old these trees were. But I do know that some place names do come from either there being a prevalence of a certain tree or there being just one really special tree. So, and I would just say it's very clear from all kinds of medieval literatures that people had very, very specific knowledge of trees and were actively cultivating different kinds of trees. So that's for sure. You know, we're so impressed when someone can identify like five or six trees in the neighborhood, but, and that's true for birds too. You know, like we think of people who know about a lot of birds must have a very special hobby in, in birds or they're a very special hobby in knowing about trees, but that's definitely not true for medieval writers. And I, I see this when I've written about birds too. You know, they have like two dozen words for bird song for different kinds of birds, right? And this is actually why I got interested at all in trees is because I'm really interested in the way that medieval encyclopedists and other kinds of what we would think of as being like scientific or nonfiction writers are creating an English that is rooted in natural history. We sometimes think of the origins of modern English as being rooted in poetry, like in Chaucer. Or if you want like the Wycliffe Bible and the translation of the Bible into English. But I think there's a third sort of unexplored area, which is the invention and translation of general science. And that there was a lot of language that needed to come into writing or even be invented on the spot to talk about in a written form, some very detailed natural history. And so when, once you go down that route, you realize that someone like Chaucer constructed the first 18 lines of the Canterbury Tales from an encyclopedic entry, that that language is generating language that we say is poetic from language that we wouldn't normally associate with literary things, but is actually creating a literary language by pulling language about the natural world and natural observation. So what you said about the idea of, you know, the, the trees and the birds and the plants and uh, knowing what they are around you locally and how that informs your identity. That's just made me think kind of with renewed respect for people who traveled. So like Marjorie Kemp, for example, how terrifying it must be to not recognize the natural landscape around you. Is that something that ever comes up? 
That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, so Marjorie Kemp has a series of guides, right? One of the reasons they're important to her is because like they're guarding her chastity and they're like procuring food for her and alms for her. But I think, I mean, I would have to go back and read the book of Marjorie Kemp, but I think it's an interesting thesis that like, it must be really hard for people to get their bearings. And her guides are not always local, but sometimes she does have a local guide. And and I would think that that would be really important for sure. It really sounds from my own, admittedly, much later, I'm the last decade of the 16th century right now. But from my research in that area, and from what you're saying, it really sounds like trees and other natural spaces and things were very much a ubiquitous point of reference for everyday life, whether it was in terms of, oh, you need to get to so-and-so's farm. Well, if you keep walking until you see the two willow trees that are at a slight slant, and then go a mile past that. But also in the terms of when you're looking for a phrase to describe something or a way to relate to something, you turn to the natural world for those descriptors and that language. I think you're right. It's partly because you're sort of defining who you are by where you are in a very sort of localized way. As I'm sure you know, before the 14th century, people really didn't have last names. Certain people did, but in Geoffrey Chaucer, it's sort of unusual that way that he had an artisanal name that then, you know, became a last name. But most people, like when you look at tax records from this period, are defined as so-and-so near the such-and-such, right? Near the river or near the town. And so having a very localized understanding of who you are partly means that you also have an understanding of who you are with respect to natural monuments, as you say, like an important tree or cluster of tree or grove or large rock or mountain or something like that. I think that's that's absolutely true. I think trees are even more special that way. And I think that's because there is a kind of long tradition of seeing trees as more human than other vegetal life. I mean, there's certainly flowers, like roses, you could say, are too, but I think trees even more. So you're probably familiar with like the idea of the great chain of being. This is big in the Renaissance, but exists in the Middle Ages too. So, you know, gods at the top and the angels and then people and then animals and then the lesser animals like oysters that don't move and stuff and then trees and then rocks, right? And so they're very interested in trying to figure out why is a tree not an animal? Like the, distinguishing themselves, trees can't move deliberately trees don't feel sorrow, maybe. Trees don't feel pain, maybe. The life of a, of a tree is kind of hidden with life of animals. But they're willing to also then make another jump and be like, how are trees like people? Like really literally. They'll say stuff like a tree has bark instead of skin and they have limbs like human beings have bones and they have pith like human beings have veins. And that's more true with trees than with other kinds of vegetable life. So like with other kinds of vegetable life, they're like, why are they not animals? Whereas trees are like, why are they like humans? Don't they kind of have hair? Don't they have a crown? So I think there's like a special, special identification with trees. I have a fun anecdote for you here because I'm obsessed with it currently and therefore I'm just throwing it at everyone I can think of. My poor supervisor heard me talk about it for like 10 minutes this morning. I've been thinking about sort of regional variation within England recently and I keep returning to this bit in Richard II. Bolingbroke has just come back to try and claim the throne. And he asks Northumberland, you know, how far are we from this landmark? And Northumberland says, you know, I don't know, and goes on to say, I'm a stranger here in Gloucestershire. Basically, oh, the terrain's really confusing and frightening here. I I don't understand it. Which of course is hilarious because, you know, he's in like, 
Gloucestershire. It's not particularly forbidding, but he's like, this landscape I am extremely uncomfortable with. And he uses stranger, which seems to commonly be used to denote someone coming from overseas, as Bolingbroke has just done, or someone who was born overseas, as opposed to foreigner, which you might use for, you know, Shakespeare migrating from Stratford to London. And so it does seem to be even still a point of reference by the 16th century, people get or can get very discomforted by a terrain that isn't sort of their native local one. Yeah, absolutely. Especially like if you know what happened to Edward II, you could feel really pretty bad about being in Gloucestershire. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, once you're getting towards like the West Country too, I think there's more and more talk about that. But for sure, I, I think people were familiar. I mean, noblemen had perambulated. They had itinerant courts, right? And they had many different houses. So you could say, you could, you could think about that example and say, you know, maybe that example is, is trying to convey something else, like something eerie without being really based in fact. But then on the other hand, you know, just thinking about our conversation, thinking about the way that Gerald of Wales is trying to surprise Henry II with like this weird landscape that's so unfamiliar. You know, there's a certain way in which that odd landscape that strange grove, those trees that are unfamiliar to you because they don't grow in the areas that you're familiar with, you know, are there as as kind of markers of your own foreignness, like something that you have to confront, something strange. Thank you. Oh, this is so interesting. I've had a really lovely time. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for including me. After our conversation with Emily, I've realised that I never thought about historic tree planting. So as in, I just assumed that the trees were left to their own devices for thousands of years. The (laughs) Industrial Revolution like merrily destroyed a lot of them. And then we've kind of followed that example. But I'm thinking this was perhaps not the case. Since the medieval period, monks had planted trees to beautify their monasteries and grow fruit. And because wood was such an important resource for buildings and trade, more trees had to be planted in the place of the many that were felled. Charles II and his successors in particular pursued a very ambitious planting policy. Two important sites for early modern tree planting were the Forest of Dean in 1668 and the New Forest in 1698. I'm also going to complicate things slightly by highlighting that forest didn't necessarily mean trees. In his work The Treatise of the Laws of the Forest, Elizabethan writer John Manwood stated that a forest is a certain territory of woody grounds and fruitful pastures privileged for wild beasts and fowl. So forests had some variety in early modern thought and Shakespeare's forest in As You Like It may not have been that unusual in including sheep, although perhaps not lions. Okay, so we've got a John Manwood who writes about trees. That is a ridiculous case of nominative determinism. (laughs) And in the early modern period, we see a burgeoning environmentalism and an emphasis on conservation when it comes to trees and their use. People were encouraged to take only as much as they needed from trees, which is still an excellent principle to apply to most things. I'm thinking particularly here about the raid on Loo Roll before lockdown also made from trees, so I promise I'm not totally deviating. Okay, it is actually relevant because, as with the loo roll, in the early modern period, people were worried about scarcity of trees. So the 1543 Act for the Preservation of Woods warned that, quote, the decay of timber and woods was so significant that unless it was quickly fixed, 
there would be, quote, a great and manifest scarcity and lack of timber. This is reflected in the 16th and 17th century prices. Products made of wood were some of the most expensive consumer items, and timber prices more than tripled from 1501 to 1601. Anxieties around scarcity were compounded by the convergence of the practical and symbolic importance of trees as building material for houses and ships, but also, relatedly, as symbols of national identity. Writing in 1612, English agricultural writer Arthur Standish put it like this, No wood, no kingdom. To finish today's episode, we have an extract from Michael Drayton's poem Polyolbion, written around 1612. The poem describes the landscape of England and Wales. You Dryades, that are said with oaks to live and die, wherefore in our distress do you our dwellings fly, upon this monstrous age, and not revenge our wrong? for cutting down an oak that justly did belong to one of Ceres' nymphs, in Thessaly that grew in the Dodonian grove. O oh, nymphs, you could pursue the son of Perops then, and did the goddess stir that villainy to wreak the tyrant did to her, who with a dreadful frown did blast the growing grain, and having from him reft what should his life maintain, she unto Scythia sent, for hunger, him to gnaw, and thrust her down his throat into his staunchless maw. When nor sea nor land for him sufficient were, with his devouring teeth his wretched flesh did tear. This did you for one tree, but of whole forests they that in this impious times have been the vile decay, whom I may justly call their country's deadly foes. Gainst them you move no power, their spoil unpunished goes. How many grieved souls in future time shall starve, for that which they have wrapped their beastly lust to serve. We, sometime that the state of famous Britain were, for whom she was renowned in kingdoms far and near, are ransacked, and our trees so hacked above the ground, that where their lofty tops their neighbouring countries crowned, their trunks, like aged folks, now bare and naked stand, as for revenge to heaven each held a withered hand. And where the goodly herds of high-palmed hearts did gaze upon the passerby, there now doth only graze the gallant back carrion jade, and hurtful swine do spoil once to the sylvan powers our consecrated soil. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm off to climb a tree. Come back next week for our final episode on the harvest. You can follow us on Twitter at The Nature Pod, where we post all the stuff we couldn't fit into the episode and we give updates on what's to come. If you enjoyed listening, please leave a review, tell your friends and subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode. Until next time. This episode was produced by Mary Hitchman and Chloe Fairbanks. The artwork is by Chloe Fairbanks. The theme tune is by Alexander Nakarada and is licensed for use under Creative Commons. Thank you to our actors for this episode, Charlotte Perkins and Elena Spinelli, for bringing these historical texts to life. We are grateful to Torch Oxford for supporting this project. Music